Axelrod! How are you, my friend? Doing well. It's been so long since I've seen you. I know. I miss you guys. I, I thought we were going to be seeing too. a lot of each other, but no can do. I'm under a blanket. Actually. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm CNN senior political reporter Nia Malika Henderson in for David Chalian, and this is The Daily DC. The 2020 election is fast approaching, a little under six months to go. At this point, in both President Trump and Vice President Biden have made one man key to their campaigns. You guessed it, that is former President Obama. For President Trump, that means pitching a bogus, crazy, hard-to-follow, hard-to-understand conspiracy theory about the prosecution of his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, dubbed Obamagate, to try to distract from mounting death tolls and a slipshod virus response. And as an added bonus, he's now dragged Biden into the fray as well. Ultimately, the president knew everything. President Obama and Vice President Biden, they knew everything. If if I were in that position, it'd be a whole different thing. And now it's like an avalanche of really bad, call it treason, call it whatever you want. But they tried to take down a duly elected president of the United States. But for Vice President Biden, it means reminding voters of his ties to President Obama as he mounts his own vice presidential search and looks to shore up questions about his background and electability. Joining me now to discuss the VP selection process, President Trump's campaign strategy, and much, much more is former senior advisor to President Obama, David Axelrod, who is the host of his own CNN podcast as well, The Axe Files. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. Hey, my friend. Good to be with you. So let's just dive right in. Veep stakes, that's what everyone is talking about in many ways in terms of what Biden's next move is going to be. You were part of the VP vetting team for President Obama. Walk us through that process. What is that like? You gather the list of names. How do you gather that list of names? And what do you do once you've got that list of names? Well, you generally do a pretty wide scoop of potential candidates. You want to start with a broad field so that you don't miss anything or any potential gem, and then you whittle it down. I think we looked at 30 people back in 2008, some far more seriously than others. Biden was always very close to the top of the list, but by no means was it certain that he was going to be the nominee. And once, you know, you have preliminary discussions with these candidates, you ask them for certain documents, personal documents and, you know, financial documents and so on. And as the process moves on and you get to the list of semifinalists, the rigor becomes greater and you really do some deep dives. And then it becomes a matter really of who the candidate feels comfortable with and what you feel that that candidate brings, not just to the ticket, but what they bring to a government. Because this really is the first governmental decision and maybe one of the most important that any president makes. And you're going to be judged by that. John McCain learned that in 2008. So it seems like Biden's field is probably not 30 people, partly because he's said it'll likely be a woman. Right. I want you to kind of walk me through some of these names that we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. and give your sense of what the pros and cons of these folks are and how likely yeah. they would be as a VP pick. Let's start with Kamala Harris. 
Well, Kamala Harris, first of all, she and several others have an advantage because they've actually been candidates. So they have some feel for what is involved in being a candidate at that level. One of the reasons that Barack Obama chose Joe Biden, one of them, was that he had experienced the national campaign and there was some comfort that he wouldn't feel like he was being thrown into the deep water when he became the nominee. She brings that experience of having been on a debate stage, of having had a group of reporters with microphones and cameras in her face, of having to deal with all of the stresses and strains of a candidacy. And obviously, she is a charismatic person, smart, attractive. She is a woman of color and motivating Younger voters and voters of color is going to be an important part of Biden's strategy. You asked me about the downside is just any questions that might have arisen from her candidacy. And there was some reports that there was still some ouchiness about her very deliberate attack on Biden in the first debate. Yeah. So, you know, that may be a factor. I don't know. Amy Klobuchar. Yeah, I, you know, look, I think in terms of relationships with Biden, this would be a comfortable one for him. They seem to have... Just the chemistry between them seems to be good. They never really clashed during the campaign. Philosophically, she comes from a more moderate place that both may hook up with his politics, but also with their perception of what they need, because the great battleground will be the suburbs this year. So a moderate woman may play really well there. And then, of course, the industrial Midwest, the upper Midwest. In terms of the downside, the progressive base might not be thrilled with the choice is one issue. The other is there are these issues that have kicked around about her treatment of her staff. And then Senator Warren, what do you make of her chances and her pros and cons? Well, she's a towering intellect when it comes to public policy. You know, she's a longtime advocate around middle-class economic issues. And, you know, the thing that the next president is going to confront whoever wins this election, is this self-imposed depression that we've placed ourselves in to try and fight this virus. And there are structural problems. You know, she talked about bold structural change in her campaign. The need for bold structural changes is more obvious now than ever. So she's masterful on those issues. She is obviously a strong figure. She would excite the progressive base. And that's the argument for Elizabeth Warren. The argument against her is that she is kind of the show, you know. I mean, she is (laughs) used to being the principal. So you'd have to satisfy yourself that she would comfortably fit into the number two role. Secondly, she is a little older. She's also in her 70s. That might be a concern given Biden's age. A third, which may or may not be a concern, is there's a Republican governor in uh, Massachusetts. So if she were to leave he would at least very temporarily be able to appoint another uh, senator until there was a special election. And the margins in that Senate may be very small. So those would be the pluses and minuses for Warren. The other category of VP candidates um, are the are, are governors. Yeah, Governor and, Whitmer um, being so one. Whitmer, maybe Governor Raimondo from Rhode Island. Those people, they offer a different opportunity in that they have managed and they know how to run governments. And that is a desirable quality in someone who may well be president at some point here. The downside of picking the governors is that they haven't been in the national picture. And so it might be a little bit bracing for them to be tossed into this mix, into this maelstrom. And so that would be perhaps some cause for concern, but I wouldn't rule them out. 
And there are a lot of questions right now about the sexual assault allegations against Biden from his former Stafford mm-hmm. Tariq. And whoever the vice presidential pick is, it'll be a woman. They'll have to speak to this. You wrote on CNN.com that you were briefed on the efforts to vet Biden and were told of no issues back in 2008. What does that say to you? Well, look, nothing's dispositive. All I can tell you is that the vetting team back in 2008 was a very, very experienced and aggressive vetting team. And there were candidates who were knocked out by the work that they had done, and they were looking at all aspects of the lives of these candidates. So if there had been evidence of this or anything like it, I'm very certain that it would have turned up. And they were not looking for ways to excuse anybody. They were looking for ways to exclude people who might have problems that would make them unacceptable. So, you know, could they have missed something? Maybe. But there certainly wasn't anything about her or anything like it or any pattern of behavior that would create concern. And I thought it was important to note that. With that, we'll be right back with David Axelrod. And we are back with David Axelrod. So we've heard earlier from President Trump and this whole theory, he's calling it Obamagate, accusing both President Obama and Vice President Biden of treason, saying that the Senate should call Obama as a witness. I think a lot of the senators on the Republican side, at least, are saying, no, that's not going to happen. And you obviously served in the Obama White House and you're very close to the former president. What's your reaction to this? And what do you make of it as a campaign strategy? Well... Look, I think Donald Trump has some very defined go-to plays. I mean, partly I think he was reacting to the fact that Obama criticized him last week for the desultory nature of his handling of this crisis and for the almost unprecedented decision to drop the case against Michael Flynn after he twice pleaded guilty in court to the crime that they're now no longer pursuing. But Trump, you know, I'm sure he was irritated about that. But I think there's another thing at play here, and that is that Trump, whenever he has a problem, tends to want to start a dumpster fire somewhere else to deflect attention from it. He is not getting good marks for the way he's handled this crisis, which is, you know, obviously the most important story of the day and will, in my view, probably have more to do with people's votes than anything else. But I think he wants to create a sideshow, and this is the sideshow he's trying to create. And I say this, you know, I I mean, I I make my bones these days hanging with you as a political commentator at CNN. I'm not speaking for anyone, but I would just make these observations. If this big scheme or plot was developed in the deep state to try and thwart Donald Trump, it's really bewildering why the information that was gathered wasn't dumped into the marketplace during the campaign when it could have really impacted him. In fact, as you know, President Obama was attacked by Democrats because they didn't think that he had raised enough of a concern about the Russian interference. Secondly, it was Barack Obama who warned Donald Trump about Michael Flynn and about appointing Michael Flynn national security advisor. If they had wanted to embarrass President Trump, I don't think that President Obama would have been giving him what was, I believe, 
advice meant to help him. So this is really just a sideshow and a distraction. Conspiracy theories are consumed voraciously by a lot of his supporters, and it's they're spread serially on the networks in which he hangs out and they hang out. And this may be red meat for them. They may think it gins up their base, but the whole thing is kind of absurd. Yeah, so if you look at some of the polling, and, and granted it's way early to be looking at polling, but that's what we do, uh, Biden yes. seems to be leading <laughs> in a lot of the national matchups between himself and Trump, but some of these key swing states, they seem to be leaning towards Trump, at least at this point in time. Is that a bad sign for Biden? Does that suggest that maybe Biden isn't getting out of his basement enough? Well, look, I've seen polling on both sides of this. I think that in the polling that I've seen, Biden actually is doing okay in these battleground states. They are, we should know, battleground states for a reason. They are, by definition, close. They're going to be close. But there have been polls in recent days that showed him ahead in North Carolina. There have been polls that have shown him ahead in Arizona. These are states that were in the Trump column. In addition, Pennsylvania and Michigan look pretty good for Biden right now. Wisconsin, I think, is much more of a toss-up. So, you know, I, I think that he is in relatively good shape. But we're five months out. It is a volatile environment. The virus is controlling a lot. Trump is a guy who's unbounded by any sort of norms and will say or do anything to win and use all the power of the presidency to pursue his goals. You can't just back in here. You can't take it for granted. I think Biden is in his house for good reason. Mm -hmm. But even in his house, they can, and I think they're moving in this direction, they can deploy their surrogates. They can use social media, all the different networks of social media in creative ways to get their message out to both take offensive steps against Trump when he provides opportunities, which is almost on an hourly basis. And also to fill in the picture about Biden, I think, Nia Malika, that the greatest concern I would have from a Biden standpoint is it's clear what Trump's strategy is, and it's to depict Biden as over the hill, incapable of doing the job. And that's what they have to guard against. And they need to tell the story of Joe Biden, of what he's done, and they need to show him in active ways, even if they're 20-second snippets, but, you know, they have to guard against that narrative. Ultimately, the debates will be the biggest test. And if Biden performs well in those debates, I think that he puts to rest those attacks of Trump's. So I, I wouldn't take anything for granted. The worst thing that could happen to Biden if he goes all out here is that he wins by a wider margin than he might have otherwise. But if you sit back and assume that you're going to win, then you put yourself in jeopardy of losing. Can you imagine a scenario where Donald Trump goes into November with his response to the pandemic as a positive? It's really hard to see, but you know, I think you can see the calculation that he's making. The paradox is the better we did at this social distancing and the more we tamped down the impact of the virus, the more people would feel like it was all overblown and we didn't need to do it. And you see that frustration breaking out all over. Now Trump is siding with people's frustration. He is a master of the politics of grievance. And you can see what he's setting up now. He knows the economy isn't going to be what he hoped it would be. It's going to be a disaster heading into the election. So he doesn't want to be blamed for that. And he wants to point to the elites and the experts, the people who are sitting in their Tony suburban houses and apartment towers and telling working people that they can't work or can't live their lives. 
That is where he's going with this. Will it work? I don't know. You look at polling and people seem to understand that the virus is serious and that we ought to stay the course. Where that's going to be come November or even whether we have a second wave, we don't know. But look, he's in a difficult spot. I think he has to destroy Biden or try to. I think he has to shave his advantage among constituencies like young people. I think that's why they're pushing out the Tara Reid story particularly. You know, they, they, they want to uh, depress his vote and try and maximize their base. And, you know, we'll see. I think it's three months ago, I would have said Trump was the favorite to win this race. I don't think you'd say that today. What do you think is going to happen with the conventions? I think we're looking at a virtual convention. I don't see any other way. I don't think the authorities in North Carolina are going to allow the Republicans to have that convention. It seems to me the Democrats have already sort of tacitly acknowledged that it's going to have to be a virtual affair, uh, which will be interesting. It could be better. I mean, I hate to say it. I don't want to impugn all my old friends in politics, but it isn't the worst thing not to watch a whole series of bloviating politicians right. make speeches and with cutaways of people in funny hats holding drinks. There are better television productions you can produce, and I think that both parties are going to probably be about that business. David Axelrod, so great to chat with you and to delve into all of these issues. As we said, it's early, still a lot to go before this election in November, and we're sure that we'll talk to you again. Okay, my friend, I can't wait to be sitting next to you again on a, on a CNN set, hopefully by election night. Take care and a special thanks to our listeners as well. The Daily DC is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is the executive producer and Haley Thomas is the senior news producer. Raj Makija is our technical lead. Our episodes are produced by Will Cadigan, Mimi Mutesa, and Priscilla Alibi and engineered by Francisco Monroy. David Toledo is the team's production assistant. Y'all stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.